Let's pray. Father, we love you and we declare that. And we stand united together as a congregation to proclaim that you are Lord. We stand as a congregation to declare that you are coming back again. And we stand as a congregation to make it all possible to to win every last soul that we possibly can before you return. We thank you, Father, for your word and how it convicts us and how it shows us the direction and the path of our life. We thank you that Phil can bring that to us because he's spent so much time and your Holy Spirit has worked through him. And he's going to bring us a message, Lord, that we can understand and take with us all week. We thank you for showing us uh, your mercy, for showing us grace. Thank you, Lord, that even though we struggle in life here, we look forward to the time of eternity with you. And we strive for that here on this earth. We love you. We give you praise and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Ray. Bob Goff tells this story. It's pretty good. He and his wife own a house right on a bay in the San Diego area. Literally, they live right on the water. Bob says that there is a grass path that goes around that bay that they don't own. It is public property, and a lot of people like to walk along the water on that path. Well, one of his favorite things to do along with his wife is to sit on their deck and watch the folks as they walk that path. Oftentimes, as people are strolling along, they'll look up and see the two of them sitting on their deck and they'll throw a wave their direction and Bob will wave back, his wife will wave back. And he says that it's a throwback to a simpler, easier time in life. And they really enjoy that at nighttime. On one particular evening, they were sitting out there just like they typically do and a a fella came walking by himself. Didn't have a lady on his arm, just walking by himself. As he got in front of their place, they're sitting on the deck, he looks their direction and he starts waving at them. And they waved back like they would with anybody else. After they thought an appropriate amount of time had gone by, they put their hands down, but this fella standing on the path just kept waving. And he was waving excitedly. So Bob waved back and the guy waved back and on and on it went until finally Bob says it got kind of awkward. So he decided to walk down to the path and see if this guy needed something. See exactly what he did. So he walked down, he stuck out his hand ready to shake hands and find out what was going through this fellow's mind. That guy reached out, grabbed his hand and before Bob could say anything at all, this man said to him, hi, my name is Ryan and I'm in love. Just like that. My name is Ryan and I'm in love. Bob said he had one of those goofy expressions on his face that young men in love oftentimes have, so he didn't even need the declaration to figure that out. Well, Bob looks back at him and says, well, Ryan, that is just fantastic. Congratulations. Ryan said, well, that's not why I came. I I wanted to ask you a question. Bob said, well, go ahead, ask me the question. Ryan mustered up a bunch of courage and kind of stammered around a little bit, and he said, well, I was wondering, I was wondering, and then there was this big, long, meditative pause, and Bob was just waiting to hear it, and finally Ryan got it out. He said, I was wondering if I could propose to her in your backyard. Bob said, well, that's kind of weird. This guy's a complete stranger, and he's asking me if he could do something like this, but okay. And so he he said to Ryan, well, sure, Ryan, that'd be fine. You go get that girl, bring her back here, and let's get the two of you engaged. Ryan turned around and ran back down that grassy trail, and they didn't see him for a few days. And so Bob's kind of wondering what was going on. Well, they were sitting back on the deck one evening when Ryan came running back up the trail by himself again, still no girl on his arm. Bob was kind of curious about it this time. He didn't even wait for the waving to start. He just went down to the the trail, and 
As Ryan got close, he said, Hi, you remember me? I'm the one that wants to propose in your backyard. And Bob said, Yeah, I remember. That was kind of strange. He said, Well, I have another question for you. Bob thought, Well, okay, let's see what happens. Ryan did the same thing. He kind of stammered over his words a little bit and then a long meditative pause. And finally, he mustered up enough steam to get these words out. He said, I was wondering, could we have dinner on your deck before I, I propose? Bob thought, You've got to be kidding me. Is this really happening? And he said, well, okay, that'll be fine. Went back up, told his wife about it, came back and told Ryan, you go get that girl, bring her back, and let's get the two of you engaged. So Ryan goes back down the trail. A few days later, Ryan came back. No girl on his arm, no contact in the in-between times. Ryan comes back, and, and you could tell, Bob says, that he had another question in mind. This time, he stood down on the trail waving with both arms, as big as he could. Bob thought, i got to go down there. So he walks down, and and Ryan says to him, I I had another question. Okay, what's your question, Bob says. And he starts stammering over his words again, long pause. He's finally figured out Bob has that after that long pause, there's a whopper of a question coming. And Ryan says to him, I I was wondering, could some of our friends serve the dinner that we're going to have on your deck? And Bob said, well, I I suppose that'd be okay. How many were you thinking about? Are you ready for this? Ryan said, 20. Like to have 20 of our friends serve us dinner. Bob's thinking 20 people serving two people dinner. (laughs) Wow. Okay, this is crazy. But he knew that Ryan had really been investing himself and putting this proposal together. He had been thinking through it in every capacity. So now Bob's starting to get caught up in it. Well, Ryan turns around, heads back down the trail, and a few days later, he comes back, and and Bob's excited to visit with him again. He wants to hear what the next detail is, because still no lady on his arm. Bob goes down the trail. They get to talking a little bit, and and Ryan says to him, I I was wondering, can I ask you one more favor? And, And Bob said, sure, Ryan, you go ahead. He's just really caught up in the moment. He said, could we have a dance in your backyard? Would that be okay, just the two of us, if we dance in your backyard? Bob said, that'll be great, Ryan. We'll set up a sound system. We'll get you some music back there. I'll build you a dance floor. Now you go get that girl and get her back here and let's get you engaged. And Ryan takes off running again. And he comes back down the trail a few days later. Bob was sitting on the deck hoping to see Ryan again because he's just that excited about these conversations. This time, Ryan is out of breath. When he gets to the trail, he bends down on his knees. He's sucking air for all he's worth. And, and Bob could just tell that this was going to be a doozy. So he goes down and, and says, Ryan, how you doing today? Ryan said, I'm doing fine, but I got a question for you. So they talked just a little bit. And finally, Ryan gets a, a head of steam behind him again. And he, he blurts out these words. Do you have a boat? Bob said, What? He said, well, I thought it'd be really cool after we have dinner on your deck and after we dance in your backyard under the stars, if I was to take her out on a boat and propose to her on the boat in the bay, do you have a boat? Bob barely knows this guy. And he said, Ryan, I have a boat. That'll be great. I'll take you out in the bay and you can propose on the boat and it'll all be fine. Now you go get that girl and bring her back here and let's get you engaged. But the problem is at this point, the excitement and the exuberance that Ryan had had carried over to Bob and Bob decided he was going to go in and call one of his friends in the Coast Guard and, and see if they could add just another element to the whole story. Well, Ryan had come back and they set up a date and a time and all those details got worked out. 
And finally, the night came. Ryan was walking along the grass trail, had a a girl on his arm, presumably his girlfriend, soon to be his fiance. When they got to Bob's backyard, they veered off the trail and started walking up towards the house. Bob says that at that moment, Ryan's fiance started to think, "Are, are we where we're supposed to be? Is this okay? When they got closer to the house, she was really kind of bothered by it. They started up on the deck and she said, are, are we okay? We don't know who lives here. Is this all right? Ryan was calming her down saying, yep, it's all fine. They get up on the deck and here's the table set perfectly for them. And 20 of their friends come out and serve them dinner. Pretty amazing night. Bob says they ate dinner on the deck and then they went back down onto the yard where the dance floor was at. And the two of them danced under the stars. It was a beautiful night. And then Ryan took her by the hand, led her down to the dock, and they got onto the boat of a complete stranger and headed out into the bay. When they got out into the bay, everything was set up exactly as it should have been. Ryan was nervous like he always was and kind of stammered over his words. But finally, he mustered up enough courage, and every married man in here knows what I'm talking about. He mustered up enough courage to finally say, will you marry me? And he was met by this huge, exuberant, Yes, and at that exact moment, the Coast Guard fire ship, firefighting ship that was parked behind them, launched off all of their water cannons up into the air. This is what Bob had worked out for them. He says that drops of water came raining down on the two of them like kisses from heaven while they were on that boat. It was a beautiful night, perfect night that Ryan had poured himself into. He had invested everything he had in trying to put the exact scenario together that he wanted, one that would last forever. Bob says it was bold, it was whimsical, it was audacious. It was this move that captured everyone's attention. It was even contagious. Other people got wrapped up in it. After he says all of that about Ryan's proposal, Bob would go on to make this statement. It's really good. Take a look. Being engaged isn't just an event that happens when a guy gets on one knee and puts a ring on his true love's finger. Being engaged is a way of doing life, a way of living and loving. It's about going to extremes and expressing the bright hope that life offers us, a hope that makes us brave and expels the darkness with light. That's what I want my life to be all about, full of abandon, whimsy, and in love. I want to be engaged to life and with life. That's really a great statement. I want to be engaged for life. In every love relationship I have, this is what Bob is teaching, I want to be fully engaged all the way through. He goes on to say that he lost track of Ryan. He doesn't know what the years following that engagement have looked like, but he is positive with the effort that was poured into the engagement and the character behind Ryan that their relationship has gone the distance because they would be engaged all the way through. If the Apostle Paul were trying to sum all of that up, he may very well have used these words from 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bibles, open up there with me. We've been preaching this series of messages for the past few weeks, or messages for the past few weeks. We've called it the absolutes of love, and it comes just from verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Speaking of love, Paul says it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. 
this whole idea of being engaged in life and with life, particularly in relational aspects, could be summed up by the Apostle Paul with this statement. Take a look at this. Love always perseveres. It goes the distance. And it does. I want us to explore what that looks like this morning. And we'll put it together with the messages that have preceded it. If you haven't heard those, they're on the internet. Or you can get those in the Welcome Center just by filling out in a a notebook there that you'd like copies of them. But this idea of love persevering, love going the distance, if we're really going to understand it in our earthly relationships, first we have to understand how it works in our heavenly relationship, in our relationship with God. Because He sets the table for every other relationship we're ever going to have, particularly in regard to this idea of a persevering love. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are some in the chair racks in front of you or beside you, possibly behind you. I encourage you to open up and look at this passage with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, "'You are my son. Today I have become your father.'" And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, obviously, this person, Melchizedek, that shows up in Hebrews chapter 4 is a curious individual. I wish we had enough time today to really explore him. We don't. Maybe we'll circle back on that. Let me just tell you that there's great significance in what you hear about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What I really want you to see is how the writer of Hebrews starts this out. He says that when Jesus left heaven, when he gave up all that heaven had to offer and he came to earth, when God came to earth in human form, something special happened. At that moment, he was put into a position where he could sympathize, according to the writer of Hebrews, with all of our weaknesses. He understands every challenge you will ever face, every obstacle you will go around, every hurdle you will overcome. Jesus understands all of those. Even in the realm of temptation, Jesus understands what that's like, though according to the writer of Hebrews and what we know about the nature of Jesus on this earth, in the 33 years he was here, he remained sinless. And that's part of what sets him apart. 
So when we come before God with emotions of anger, Jesus understands that. When we are distant in our relationship with God and we're pushing further and further away, Jesus understands because for 33 years on this earth, He watched people do that. When we make choices based on our own desires and we forsake what God wants, again, for 33 years, Jesus saw it. He can sympathize with it because in His humanity, He saw it taking place all the time. That makes it somewhat of a special relationship. Now, there are many other things that add to the uniqueness of that relationship, but the sympathy side of who Jesus was is extremely important when we put it together with the idea of his persevering love. And it's not all from the negative. When we're in a situation where we are loving God with all that we have, Jesus understands that. When we are drawing near to him all the time, Jesus understands that. When we are forgiving of other people, Jesus understands that. And when we are choosing God's will and God's way over our will and our way, Jesus understands that. He understands it so much that the writer of Hebrews would say that makes it possible. Listen to this again from verse 9. It makes this possible. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That's the persevering love of Christ. It lasts forever. It is eternal salvation. And Jesus walks through all of those issues in life with us, the bad as well as the good. He is right beside us through all of them unto eternity. When that relationship is intact, when it is solid and all that it should be, we discover a pattern for perseverance that is unequaled, totally unequaled. I was going through different passages of Scripture this past week, looking at the persevering nature of God and what happens through our relationship with Him through His Son. I pulled out just 10 passages. We're going to project them up on the screen. We don't typically do that, but we're going to project them up on the screen for the sake of time. Let me show you how this works. The first one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now the children of Israel or the Hebrews were getting ready to move into the promised land. And God says through Moses before Joshua would take over the leadership, there are giants in the land. There are giants in the promise. But don't you be afraid because I will go with you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The persevering nature of God says that he will face our giants with us. Still in the book of Deuteronomy, Chapter 31, verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Have you ever had to face things in life that have started with fear and progressed into discouragement? Anybody ever been there? Just throw your hand up if you know what I'm talking about. God says in those situations, you remember that I am with you. You remember that I am walking through this right beside you. And I'm not leaving Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I will persevere with you even through discouragement. This is found in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 5. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The persevering love of God as it is poured into our lives. 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 57. 
May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. A lot of times we look at how God helped other people that have gone on ahead of us and we covet that relationship. Well, you don't need to covet it. It can be a part of your life. Just as he has been with other people, God will be with you and he will persevere all the way through unto eternity with you. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20. David also said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. Now, David is building the temple. He's getting, or Solomon's going to build the temple, and David's giving him all kinds of instructions. This is a, a permanent home for God. He's going to move out of the tabernacle into the temple, and people are going to come there to worship. It's the job that was given to Solomon, and I love how David says this. Just do the work, and God will be with you. The same thing is true for us. And whatever task that sits in front of you, God-given task, do the work. You stay faithful, and God will as well. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Even in the day-to-day aspects of life, as you are just doing the work, God is right there beside you. That's the persevering power of God, and that's a sign of the love relationship. Psalm chapter 37, verse 28. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. Have you ever looked at other people's lives, godless people's lives, and seen blessings that you could not understand and it didn't seem fair to you? Number of hands going up there. Well, here's what God wants you to know. In His persevering love, God's got it. You don't worry about them. He will stay with you all the way through. What He's doing in other people's lives doesn't matter. He is with you. You just release the rest of it to God. Psalm 94, verse 14. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. God is right there with you all the time. He will not forsake you. See how it all builds? It's the persevering nature of the love relationship we have with God. Isaiah 41, verse 17. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Have you ever been in a time of need? Maybe you were thirsty. Maybe you were broke. Maybe you're just in a huge time of need, however you might define it. God said through the prophet Isaiah that in those moments, we need to remember that God is always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. When we recognize that, we will begin to see the providential hand of God as he provides for our needs over and over and over again. He will never leave us nor forsake us because love always perseveres. God's love always perseveres. Isaiah 42, verse 16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. I don't know what challenge you face, but God does. It is not an unknown path to Him that you're on, and He will lead you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you, because God's love always perseveres. Hebrews 13, 5, this is the last one. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you.
It's interesting to me that we could wrap this up with that idea of the love of money and learning how to be content with what we have because in the year that we live in, the days that surround us, that type of contentment seems very distant. People are always looking for something more. They're always trying to gain more. They're always trying to make more. Money drives everything. So God says, you be content with what you have. Be careful of the love of money. You be content with what you have because I will never leave you nor forsake you. A friend of mine emailed me last night and, and was talking about this whole idea of contentment. He had a whole list of adjectives and, and synonyms that would work with the idea of contentment, things like this word, satisfied. When we really understand that we can be satisfied with just Jesus, contentment will come very quickly. When we recognize that He is all we need, then we will see the persevering power of His love over and over and over in our lives, and these other things won't matter because God's love always perseveres. Perfect love always perseveres. It happens that way with God, just like with other people, when we enter into a covenant relationship with Him. When we find a, a committed relationship with God, we begin to see the persevering power that He offers us. That part of the love relationship becomes very evident. We're still in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 19. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By the way, that's one of the biggest struggles that people have is confidence in their faith. Book after book after book has been written on confidence in our faith. All we need to do is really read these few verses and we can figure out how it comes about. Pay attention to this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hopes we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If you want confidence in your faith, then listen to me. There's two things that you need to understand. The first is God's. Now, it has to do with your heart and the sprinkling of it, according to the writer of Hebrews. Your heart has to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's called the atonement. Your sins are atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when your heart has been sprinkled by that blood, nothing can stop you. Nothing can separate you from the love that is possible with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, because your heart has been covered by the blood of Christ. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to make this interesting statement. Once you know that, then your body needs to be washed with pure water. That is a beautiful description of Christian baptism. When we understand that our heart has been sprinkled by the blood of Christ and our body is in turn washed by pure water, we have established a covenant relationship with God. God's done His part and we have done our part and our part is so small. It is so small. It is this little tiny thing where we say to God, I am all in, Lord. I trust You. I want to enter a love relationship with You. When those two things happen, confidence to enter the most holy place follows. We become confident in our walk with Him. 
secure in our walk with him. We have developed a persevering love because of the covenant. That's the way it works. Now, if we can understand that with our relationship with God, we can understand how it carries over in other relationships, like between friends. We either passively or aggressively enter into covenant relationships with friends. Hopefully, we aggressively enter into them with the people that we have a persevering love relationship with. Oftentimes, and men are particularly bad about this, we don't tell other people how valuable the relationship is. We don't tell them how significant it is in our life. We never acknowledge that we're in a love relationship, a persevering love relationship. But the truth is, we are, or we at least should be. My oldest friend in all the world is a fellow named Scott Johannes. He lives in Marshalltown, Iowa. We met each other at Kinsler Elementary School in Wichita, Kansas. We went to college together. After growing up with one another, we were roommates. I stood beside him at his wedding. He stood beside me at mine. We talk on a regular basis, though we are separated by many miles. We talk on a regular basis. We do life with each other, and we always have. For as long as I can remember, this spans back over 35 years, he and I have done life together. In the good times as well as the bad, we have talked with each other through every aspect of it. Thankfully, by the grace of God, we get to connect every couple of years and see each other face to face. But in the meantime, we just talk every few weeks. In fact, on my way to church this morning, I had a message from Scott on my phone as I drove into range. Scott had called last night and I just didn't get the call, so his message popped up. We have a covenant relationship with one another that's gone on for a long time. Back in the days when we were growing up, a a lot of young boys would try to take that relationship and make something symbolic out of it. So we were grabbing hold of the idea of blood brothers from the Old West. Here's what we would do. I wasn't very good at it, and so thankfully I've only done this once. We'd take a knife and cut your hand, and the, the other person would cut their hand, and you would intermingle your blood. Blood brothers. It's a covenant relationship. The Bible says, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. The Bible would go on to describe repeatedly in friendship relationships, that type of covenant relationship. It exists and it is a persevering love relationship. No matter what happens, we are connected. No matter what happens, the love relationship we have continues on. Well, there are other covenant relationships that are descriptive of this same idea, like the marriage relationship. When we enter into the covenant of marriage, oftentimes these vows are shared. I said them to Tina, she said them to me, sounded just like this. I fail take you, Tina, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are separated by death. Covenant relationship. And that's exactly what happened. In essence, I said to her and she to me, we will persevere through life all the way to death with one another because we are in this covenant relationship. Through the good, through the bad, we will persevere with one another. When that type of relationship is found in marriage, something miraculous, I almost said magical, that's the wrong word, something miraculous happens. Let me show it to you. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Listen to this. And to present her to himself 
as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Husbands, if you are following the pattern of Jesus, here's what happens in your wife's life. Her stains, wrinkles, and blemishes become apparent to you, and you love her through them. And the beauty of that persevering love, if it follows the pattern of Christ, is that the stains get cleaned up, the wrinkles get ironed out, and the blemishes disappear. That's the miraculous power of marriage. Now, ladies, don't think for a minute that you're off the hook because it works on the opposite side, too. His stains, wrinkles, and blemishes become obvious. And through the persevering power of the love relationship, if it follows the persevering power of God's love through Christ for us, the same thing happens. The stains get cleaned up, the wrinkles get ironed out, and the blemishes disappear. The covenant relationship that perseveres like that in marriage works miracles, God-sized miracles in people's lives. It takes time for that to happen. It takes perseverance. It takes the ability to say, okay, we're going to work through this stain. We're going to work through this wrinkle. We're going to work through this blemish. We are going to make our way through this so that we stand holy and blameless before God and we bring that covenant relationship before God, able to say the same thing. It's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's a cool thing. That is a God-sized, miraculous aspect of the covenant relationship of marriage. And when love perseveres, that's what happens over and over and over again. Now, there's all kinds of pointed teaching in the New Testament about how this is supposed to work, but really none better than this. This is found in Matthew chapter 22. Verse 34, Matthew 22, verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and in other places in the Bible it says, with all your strength. You love the Lord your God with all you have. For people that have known God for a while, for people that have walked with Him and have developed a relationship with Jesus Christ, His Son, this isn't a hard command for us to understand. Sometimes a difficult command for us to live. Love the Lord your God with all that you have, all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength in some places. Love the Lord your God with everything that is within you. Not hard to grasp, hard to live. And so as we continue in the process of surrendering different aspects of our lives to Him, we discover the persevering side of His love and He sees ours. As we persevere through our issues that keep us distant from Him, God is perfect, we're not. We persevere through our issues and we surrender more and more of ourselves to Him. This command becomes easy. This second command a little more difficult. Listen to this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love your neighbor. And love always perseveres. Love your neighbor in a persevering way. Boy, there's a lot of people that struggle with that. There really is. A lot of people that struggle just trying to figure it out. So this is how we would define it. Love my neighbor. I don't want him to get hit by a truck. 
There you go. I love my neighbor. I don't want a sinkhole to open up underneath their house and swallow them. I love my neighbor. I no longer have a desire to spit on them every time I see them. I love my neighbor. That's how we process that command. But did you see the qualifier that Jesus put with that? What is the qualifying statement that he put with this idea of love your neighbor? Say that louder. As yourself. So before we can actually invest ourselves in developing a love relationship with God that allows us to love our neighbor, we have to figure out exactly how we love ourselves. That's going to determine the love that we extend to other people. You ever stop to think about how you love yourself? Some people have, particularly one group of people. There's an epidemic that runs through our society in the year 2016 called low self-esteem. People will say all the time, boy, I wrestle with low self-esteem. Come to celebrate recovery on Thursday night. You'll hear people talk about wrestling with their own self-image and their own low self-esteem. So people will use that statement, I have terribly low self-esteem. Well, if that's the case, that's how you're loving other people, through your low self-esteem. That defines the relationship. Now, the Mayo Clinic did a whole bunch of study on this idea of self-esteem, and they put together a list of characteristics of people that wrestle with low self-esteem. Take a look at this. Social withdrawal, anxiety and emotional turmoil, lack of social skills and self-confidence, less social conformity, eating disorders, inability to accept compliments, an inability to see yourself squarely or to be fair to yourself, and accentuating the negative. Now, if you wrestle with low self-esteem and you're loving your neighbor as you love yourself, that's how you're loving your neighbor. See, it's pretty simple. So we might say on the other side of that, then the antidote to that is high self-esteem. Well, the Mayo Clinic did a big study on that as well, looking at a list of characteristics that define those who have a, as they would say, too high of a self-esteem. This is what they came up with. Being prone to self-satisfied boasting, tending to be smug and superior, abusing relationships, adopting an air of superiority, being blind to your own faults, and tending to have impulse control problems. Is that how you want to love your neighbor? Well, if that's how you love yourself, that's going to bleed over to your love relationships. Not a lot of perseverance with that, particularly when it says that we're going to end up in abusive and manipulative situations. So in between those two, the too low self-esteem and the too high self-esteem, there is what the Mayo Clinic refers to as healthy self-esteem. Here's the characteristics. Assertive in expressing your needs and opinions. Confident in your ability to make decisions. Able to form secure and honest relationships. Realistic in your expectations and less likely to be overly critical of yourself and others. More resilient and better able to weather stress and setbacks. Less likely to experience feelings such as worthlessness, guilt, and shame. That's the way to do it. I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. If I can figure out how to do that, I can set up a persevering love relationship with other people that will go the distance because I'm loving them as I love myself. In our walk with God, sometimes we apply what I would refer to as a situational love, meaning if God's doing what we want Him to do, we love Him. If He's not doing what we think He should do, we get very distant from Him. If you've ever been in that type of a situational relationship with God, then pay attention to what Job would say. Job in chapter 13 of his book says, Though He slay me, yet will I hope in the Lord. 
I will stay close to him. Persevering relationship. Well, the same thing happens in our love relationships. We have to set up the idea of perseverance because we will face challenges. There will be difficulties. In a love relationship, in the absence of perseverance, there's just nothing but surrender over and over and over again and always looking for how we can get out. In a persevering love relationship, we're able to say no matter what we face, we will make it through. We will stay together. We will work this out. We will continue to pursue the same goals, pulling at the same speed with the same strength to always make it better in love relationships. And when we face challenges, whether they are internal or external, we will stay the course. That's a pattern we get from God. And it's the pattern that we get to extend to others. I want to leave you with an illustration of that. This is a video from a couple, Joey and Rory. They are on the country music charts and have been for several years. Joey was diagnosed with terminal cancer a few years ago. In 2014, that's when that diagnosis came in. It was aggressive then, and it's only gotten worse. In 2015, she made a choice to stop all chemo and all cancer treatments. Hospice was called in. The final stages of the disease were set. The cool thing is, this year, if God allows them to, they will celebrate 14 years of marriage, and those 14 years have been spent with Jesus at the center of it. They have figured out a persevering love relationship individually with God that has defined their relationship. And now as they face this massive challenge, they're doing it together, together with one another and together with Jesus. A couple of years before she was diagnosed, they wrote a song called When I'm Gone. Now follow the timetable on that. A couple years before she was diagnosed, they wrote the song. After she was diagnosed, it gained a lot of popularity and a lot of traction. I want you to watch this. A bright sunrise will contradict the heavy fall that weighs you down In spite of all the funeral songs The birds will make their joyful sounds You wonder why the earth still moves You wonder how you carry on You'll be okay on that first day when I'm gone. Dusk will come with fireflies and whippoorwill and crickets call and star will take its place in silvery gown and purple shawl 
When I'm gone 